This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my great pleasure to, to get to introduce my next-door neighbor. Um, Dr. Bennett Leventhal is my professional next-door neighbor um, and lives in the office next door to me. Dr. Leventhal is a professor of psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry. Uh, He wears many hats for us, um, including overseeing our training program for the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellowship, overseeing the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry for the department, and overseeing all of our clinical services for child child and adolescent psychiatry in the department. And this is really an extraordinary time for child and adolescent mental health for UCSF um, as we really think about how we care for, deliver services, and provide access to children in the Bay Area. Dr. Leventhal um, came to UCSF a couple of years ago when we were extraordinarily lucky to recruit him. Um, He has served um, um, in many leadership roles across the country and in many national child organizations. Um, He served as the chair um, of psychiatry at University of Chicago. Um, He's served as training director um, at the University of Chicago. Um, I could go on and on, but I'm going to let him sort of, um, uh, in some ways, just share all of his experience and wisdom and real, I think, sort of interest, expertise, and depth that he has in this particular topic area. Dr. Leventhal is an expert um, in the country and and really sort of uh, uh, internationally when it comes to uh, neurodevelopmental disorders and particularly autism spectrum disorders. Um, Dr. Leventhal um, runs um, many sort of clinical programs and also research projects internationally, and he's going to be talking to us both from the 30,000-foot perspective, but hopefully in many more granular ways um, about autism tonight, because I think as we think about um, children and particularly childhood development, trying to understand autism is really a gateway to trying to understand many of the neurodevelopmental disorders that we have. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Bennett Leventhal. Thank you very much. I appreciate your uh, spending time with me this evening. I hope it'll be worth your while. So um, these are uh, disclosures. I actually don't have many, but... uh, um, Okay. So we're going to talk about autism spectrum disorder, but it's one of a group of things that we call neurodevelopmental disorders. And what are neurodevelopmental disorders? Well, these are a group of conditions that are usually syndromal. They have pediatric onset, that is sometime early in life, as early as during gestation. They all affect brain functioning, and particularly those areas of the brain that are involved with emotion, cognition, and behavior, the higher level brain functions. Um, The causes of these disorders are primarily genetic, Uh, but not always. They're often familial. Familial doesn't always mean genetic. I think you had a lecture on genetics last week. Sometimes they're heritable, but not always. Not everything genetic is heritable, because some things are de novo, that that is, events occur for the first time. And there's a role for epigenetics, that is, the parts of the human DNA that don't really um, code for um, a, a particular gene or protein, and maybe responsive to effects in the environment, and of course environmental factors interacting with genes. 
In the standard nomenclature we call DSM-5, there's a long list of neurodevelopmental disorders, some of which may be familiar to you, like intellectual disability, used to be called mental retardation, but also autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, and so on and so forth. There are also a number of other disorders that are neurodevelopmental disorders that don't get classified that way, but we think of in this particular model. Obsessive compulsive disorder being one, uh, schizophrenia, because the evidence is that these disorders actually, the pathology, the problem in brain functioning, may begin as early as childhood or before. And I put at the bottom of the list Alzheimer's disease, which often is a surprise to many people. But Alzheimer's disease is also a neurodevelopmental disorder, and there's increasing evidence that the um, some of the problems associated with Alzheimer's disease may be apparent as uh, early as childhood and then progress beyond uh, that time frame. So autism is one of these neurodevelopmental disorders. So remember I said it's syndromal or a syndrome. Like most medical conditions, almost all medical conditions we think about are syndromes. They're actually not diseases. That is, a syndrome is a group of symptoms that tend to cluster together and share a common natural history tend to cluster together. doesn't mean all the symptoms are always the same in any individual with the, the syndrome. A disease is a syndrome for which there's either a known etiology or cause or for which there's a known pathophysiologic process, that is, we know how it unfolds, or both. So infectious diseases are the best model of diseases. We know what causes it and we know what the process is. But most other medical conditions like hypertension, diabetes, asthma, I could go down the list, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. We actually really don't know what causes them, and not everybody who has it has exactly the same symptoms. So when we think about autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders or other psychiatric illnesses, they're really not functionally in any way different than any other medical conditions in terms of our understanding. It's just a different organ is involved, and that organ happens to be the brain. Now, most people who think about autism, and for that matter, psychiatric disorders, primarily get their information about it from the media. And there have been a number of fairly good features, movies, about autism. Um, the best known, of course, is Rain Man. But there was a terrific movie called What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And a not-so-terrific movie on which I worked, but it got me into the... Um, to the, um, got me a credit. Uh, Mercury Rising, a Bruce Willis film, all about people with... Um, Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. Perhaps the most famous person with Autism Spectrum Disorder is a woman by the name of Temple Grandin. There was a TV movie about her starring Claire Danes. Uh, but Temple is a very high-functioning individual with ASD. She's a professor at, uh, at a university. She's an expert in animal husbandry. And there's a wonderful article that was written by Oliver Sacks about Temple that's entitled Anthropologists from Mars. And in some sense, it captures the real capacity of Temple to appreciate the uh, social world around her. She, she's really the world's leading authority on designing slaughterhouses. 
And in fact, many companies won't buy beef unless it's in a slaughterhouse that she's approved. So she's extremely accomplished, travels the world by herself. But if you met her, you would clearly understand what uh, her deficits were. And we will talk about them. She has many strengths as well, which speaks to the point that people who may have a disorder or a deficit, whether it's autism or cardiovascular disease, may have many strengths. And part of our job is to separate them and make sure we support the strengths while we try to treat the the differences that they have. And of course, there's been a great deal in the news media, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that with respect to particularly the so-called epidemic of autism. Now, autism didn't just begin in the last few years. It's been around for a very long time. This is a picture of a, um, a boy by the name of Victor and a psychologist by the name of Itard, this would be Victor and that would be Itard. Um, in the early uh, 1800s, Victor was discovered um, in a f wandering in the town of Aveyron in France, and the assumption was that he had been raised by wolves in the forest and was unsocialized. And Itard heard about him, went and picked Victor up, took him back to Paris to train him, and wrote about him in a very famous book called The Wild Boy from Aveyron. Um, a book that is still around you can find. And what he showed with Victor was that, um, that Victor never really learned to speak fluently. He never really had good social reciprocity, but he could be trained. So uh, Itard used to take him to fancy dinners, would dress him up in fancy Parisian clothes and take him to dinners. He learned how to use the forks and knives, which I never learned how to do. So um, he could learn things. And then he... Um, but he used them as sort of an experiment, um, but also a bit of a, um, a showman. But it, he tried; to, he was quite humane toward Victor, and Victor lived a, a normal lifespan. Uh, but the real modern history of uh, autism begins in 1943, when Leo Connor, the uh, child psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins University, the founder of child psychiatry, uh, wrote a paper called Autistic Stur Disturbances of Affective Content, in which he described 11 children who had significant problems with social connectivity. Um, he published this in a journal called The Nervous Child. That journal no longer exists, but I can assure you that there are at least nervous children and sometimes nervous parents still, but we don't have a journal to write that in, so we use something else. But the critical point here is that he not only described these kids clinically, and I'm going to talk to you about that, but he also described their parents and families and initially made some assumptions that may not have been correct um, that, that had to do with the parents having certain kinds of behaviors, uh, particularly moms being distant and not available and dads being equally distant and not available. Some people ascribe this to causality. Connor really never did, but part of the descriptions of the, the patients had to do with, for example, families in which both parents were working, something very unusual in the 1930s. Um, most of the time, the women stayed home and the men went to work. And so if you didn't do that, then there was some assumption that it may have affected parenting. But in fact, these were just descriptions of the patient population he took care of, many of whom are university faculty at Johns Hopkins, where he worked, and where both parents were on the faculty, and they traveled as part of their jobs. But others picked this up and used it as a descriptor of a disorder that was caused by parenting. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. Another person who worked at the same time was Hans Osberger. He was in Austria. 
a controversial figure of some sort because there's a suggestion that Osberger may have been a Nazi collaborator, which is ironic because he spoke about the humane treatment of these children, but it's reasonably well established that he may have transferred some children to the facilities where, um, where they were then uh, handicapped children were deported for, uh, to the camps. And, and killed. But in any event, there's some controversy about whether Connor knew about Asperger, but Asperger talked about kids who were considerably higher functioning than the uh, children that, um, that Connor saw. And they had language and they had average intelligence. And this led to a diagnostic d- distinction between Connor autism and Asperger's, one that I'll show you doesn't exist anymore. Connor followed up his patients 25 years later. And what's striking about this is that of the 11, only one really had independent functioning. A 36-year-old, at the time, 36-year-old bachelor who'd been a bank teller, who had lived with his parents and, um, and was president of the local Kiwanis Club, became a banker, a bunch of other things. Uh, a golfer says something about golfers and bankers, but in any event... Um, uh, but the rest of the individuals you'll see mostly lived in supported care individual uh, and um, institutions. And one of them died early, but probably of uh, complications related to epilepsy, something we don't really see anymore. Um, but up until quite recently, this was seemed to be the standard fate of people with ASD. About one in ten could live independently or semi-independently, and the others uh, were largely institutionalized mostly because these cases, most of them had intellectual disability and mental retardation. By the way, the man on the left is Donald Gray Triplett, case number one for um, um, uh, Connor. And uh, this uh, this is his brother, Oliver. And uh, he lived in Forest, Mississippi, still does. He's alive. And there's a wonderful article about him in The Atlantic in October 2010. So if you want to read about Donald Triplett in the first autism case, you can do that. Not really the first. Now, as I told you, many people jumped on the wagon about the causality of autism, and this is the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. I'm going to mention just a couple of them on this list. Uh, One is Bruno Bettelheim, who wrote a number of beautiful books about children with autism and ran a school in Chicago called the Sonia Shankman Orthogenic School, where he took the children away from their parents to give them corrective parenting because it was his view that it was the mothers that caused autism. And he had sure evidence of that and believed it. Another person I'm going to mention on this list is Margaret Mahler, who is also a psychoanalyst. And um, Dr. Mahler wrote about a book called The Psychological Birth of the Infant in which she described a normal autistic phase of development in about the first month of life during which children were all normally autistic, and then it was the mother's job to pull them out of this autistic world. And she saw it as a protective feature that it, from the, all the noise and tumult of the environment that hadn't existed when they were in utero. Now, as it turns out, this is completely wrong. And with most babies, anybody who's had a baby, can look at a baby and see within the first few days of life they're quite interactive. They're quite social, and there's no such thing as an autistic phase of development. But these were really critical features that led for 25 years or 30 years the notion that it was poor parenting or some failure on the part of parents to cause autism, a matter of considerable uh, pain and anguish to many people. 
Um, I should say, ironically, I actually was the director of the Sonia Shankman Orthogenic School for three years. Um, or for, long, actually, I was medical director for about ten. And so the school that Bettelheim started and ran, uh, he would probably think I ran into the ground, but I ran quite differently than he did. Now, what happened in the, by the early 1960s, biology started to play a role in understanding behavior and, and psychiatric illness. There had been a Nobel Prize uh, in, in, to someone studying the brain and its functioning. And so a whole series of biological studies and other kind of studies led to a changing model of what was autism. And as a result, there was now a schism between the people who were working in the field. But there was no agreement. There was no funding agreements. And finally, in 1978, the parents of kids with autism formed an organization called the National Society for Autistic Children. And they said, this is ridiculous. You people have to stop. And they forced them to create diagnostic criteria and to start doing research in a sensible way. And you'll see these diagnostic criteria, which you can read for yourself, ultimately became the diagnostic criteria that we use today. So the very people who caused autism actually were really responsible for changing the way we in academia, I'm old but not that old, um, way, we, um, way we actually studied and proceeded to work together. And you can see by the, by the 1980s, late 1980s, the diagnostic criteria for autism started to reflect what the parents actually knew and understood. So in, in, up until recently, the notion was that there were a group of disorders called pervasive developmental disorders, one of which was autism, um, but there are another number of other conditions that formed a cluster that um, had these elements of delay or onset, uh, 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 delayed onset of normal developmental patterns, um, and then impairment in social functioning and impairment in communication. And these were the standard criteria that existed up until about two or three years ago. Now, in fact, in the field had already changed two or three years ago, and because the problem was when you took autism Asperger's and you tried to separate them out on the basis of symptoms, you couldn't. And we'd go out and do field studies and you couldn't tell the difference between these groups of kids and they were all different diagnoses. You couldn't tell by the presentation of symptoms, but you also couldn't tell on the basis of, uh, of any biological measures or any other measures that we were using. So in 19, in, 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 I'm sorry, in the late 2010-12, we really changed the new model to autism spectrum disorder, and we got rid of all those subcategories. Now, there's been a lot of criticism of that, but the critical point is there are two main criteria for this disorder. One is persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction that takes place uh, throughout the, the social context. And then a set of unusual behaviors called restricted repetitive behaviors um, interests and activities. We call them RRBs, restricted and repetitive behaviors. And what happened really was we really resorted the, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, uh, much to our chagrin. And basically what we did is we took the criteria and combined them in a different way, but in a way that makes much more sense clinically and is much more relevant to clinical practice. So while some people said we got rid of everything that was good, in fact, everything stayed. And one of the areas where there's been a lot of controversy is Asperger's syndrome is gone. And when, if you take a look at it very carefully, all the diagnostic criteria for Asperger's still exist. They've just been resorted in a way so that those individuals can be clustered in a way that makes much more sense clinically and scientifically. 
They also added another disorder called social communication disorder, which is almost the same as autism, except they don't have the restricted and repetitive behaviors. They have, uh, and it's, it's presumed to be related to communication. The empirical basis for the, this, is, however, is not sound and is open to continuing a study. Okay, but let's go back to basics. Let's see what, what this syndrome really is. So first of all, it's a syndrome. We, we know what that is. It has sort of two components to it in, in the sense of thinking about it. Some things don't occur on time. They're developmental delays. And then some things just happen that are unusual. Some of the behaviors just are not typical. We don't say they're bad. We don't say they're wrong. We just say they're not typical because they may serve some function that we don't understand. And the domains of impairment are really threefold. In social functioning communication, and then this odd set of behaviors that, that we keep struggling with. Now, what's interesting is that the course of this disorder is consistent over time. People get better. It's not that they're stuck. And if you intervene with them, they actually gain skills. Um, some do very well, some not so well. Uh, and some of the most common symptoms, some of these repetitive behaviors disappear, and difficulty using visual regard, and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, actually gets better. But some of the symptoms persist, and that's what proves to be a lifelong disability. Lack of social reciprocity, the difficulty of engaging in reciprocal social interactions, some of the language abnormalities, trouble using words in a particular way, but most importantly, the rhythm of speech and the, and the pragmatic or functional elements of speech are disrupted, and then some of the behaviors persist. So instead of thinking about it in the way that Margaret Mahler and, and, uh, and Bruno Bettelheim and them thought about it, we now think about it differently. We think about these sets of phenomena, we call phenotypes, that construct the syndrome. So I'm going to talk about a few of them, so just to help you understand. So one disruption is in the area of visual regard. That is how we look at each other. Now some people say folks with autism don't look you in the eye. Rubbish. Not true because we don't look each other in the eye. If I start looking you in the eye, after a while, you get very uncomfortable. It's not what we do. What we do is we look at the face, and we scan the face. We look at the forehead, the nose, the ears, eyes, and you think about it for a minute. When you're sitting at dinner tonight or, or tomorrow at, at lunch with your three martinis, um, you can, um, after the third one, you don't look at anything, but the first two, you, you look, you scan the face. And the reason you scan the face is because there's a lot of information. The corners of the mouth, up or down, what does that mean? The squint of the eye, the, the way you hold your head. All these things on the face are very important. Now, people with autism don't know how to scan the face. They scan it somewhat, but not very effectively. So if we track their scanning, they'll look at the forehead, the shoulder, uh, the, the floor, the ear, the nose, the eyes, and their scanning is different. So their visual regard is off. We don't know why that is. It could be because their brain doesn't know how to look at the face, uh, it also could be that their brain doesn't recognize the important stimuli that you and I see in the face, and so it has little value to them. But we don't understand that. So it's not looking you in the eye, it's visual regard. 
imitation, a critical part of not only growing up but living in daily life is being able to imitate what others do. Well, first you have to recognize that they're doing it, and then you have to have the capacity to imitate it. By the way, you do it as adults as well. When you go to a dinner party, go back to my uh, Itard story, and there are like 15 forks and seven spoons, and you don't know which one to use, you look across the table and figure out what someone else is doing, and you imitate it. We do lots of other things like that in life every day. But people with autism have difficulty recognizing what other people are doing and imitating it. They also don't know how to use gestures very well. So even a very young child will point to share something. In fact, if I stand up here, and I'm not telling you I'm doing this ahead of time, and I go like this, you'll all look there. You'll stop looking at me. You know that's a social cue. People with autism don't even know to do that. And when someone does it for them, they, um, they don't... Uh, Follow, And sometimes you can even point to ask. So in, in the place of language, you know, you go into, uh, into Starbucks and you want that cookie. You don't have to say anything. Just go like that. Children do that. Infants do that. But people with autism have trouble doing it. They can also, we also use gesture, and I'm just picking on pointing at this, to make a, a point, to, to make a comment. So you can go, or... and. And that becomes really part of social communication. It's nuanced, it's subtle, but it's really important. People with ASD can't do that. Another problem is they can't engage in symbolic play by themselves and often with other people. So they, to make believe that something is something that it's not or to, to make a, pretend like a doll is a baby or, um, or a spoon is a rocket or whatever. And they have trouble doing reciprocal symbolic play as well, which proves to be a real problem if you're a parent, because one of the great joys of parenting is being able to play with your children. And if your children can't play with you, then it proves to be a real problem because the reinforcement of, that you get from parenting is the emotions and the play that you get to do with your children. And so it makes it very hard to be a parent. So not only does autism affect the child, but it actually affects the parenting. And this is where Bettelheim and others got it wrong. They didn't understand that it wasn't bad parenting that caused autism. It was autism that caused difficult parenting because the parents didn't know what to do. What do you do when your child won't play with you? I mean, it's a very painful, difficult situation. Then there's the matter of something called joint attention. And this is really critical, something you do every day. And that is the ability to join someone else in what they're paying attention to and to encourage them to join you and to be able to make trades up and back. So right now we're going to talk about autism, but in a few minutes we're going to talk about the warriors. No, let's not talk about the warriors. Um, but the point is we can change topics. We can change things we're doing. People with autism have really a hard time doing that. And so they tend to, as long as they're focused on what they're interested in, they can actually sometimes be very articulate, very interesting. But when you say, now we need to talk about what I'm interested in, they don't know how to do it or they don't want to do it and they get irritated. And that leads to a concept that is really crucial to all of this. And it's something called theory of mind. Each of us every day has this notion of what other people are thinking. And when we engage in social interaction, we're really doing an experiment. You know, we say, we say something to somebody, and then we think about what are they thinking right now. And we watch their body posture and their facial expression, listen to what they say, and, oh, I got that one right. And the best example of that is, you know, when you watch 
you know, uh, a you know, couple who have romantic interest in each other, trying to negotiate that. You know, well, would you like to go out to dinner? Well, what's he thinking? Um, and then up and back, this goes. And, but it requires that you have some theory, a notion that the other person has a thought that's separate and independent of yours, and that has an implication for you. People with ASD, this is a fundamental deficit for most of them, and they have a really hard time with it. So these are the kinds of social behaviors that really constitute the disorder. Now, there's a, remember we said it's a spectrum disorder. So some people are more severely affected than others, but most of them have significant impairments in all these areas. And, but I want to be clear. People with ASD, it's not that they're bereft of social skills. At the extremes of social functioning, they do, may do okay. They may know when someone's really upset or angry. They may know when someone's really happy. But it's in the middle, in the gray area. It's not black or white. It's the gray area where they have trouble. And 90% of our lives has lived in the gray area of, of social interaction and emotional expression, etc. So when we look at the spectrum, we know the kind of features that play a role in the spectrum. So if you have few autism symptoms, you have good language skills, you have good social skills, and you have higher cognitive functioning, you're going to be on the higher functioning end of the spectrum. The more dysfunction you have on the other side, um, the, uh, then the lower functioning you're going to be. Okay, so it gives us some sense that there's a spectrum, and some people are very high functioning, some people are very low functioning. Now, we're going to change gears, and we're going to talk a little science now. So what about the autism epidemic? So before we talk about the autism, because everybody wants to know about that, so let's talk about language first. We have to have the right words in place. So the first word is prevalence. That is the proportion of a given population that has a particular condition or characteristic. That is, it translates into the number of cases that are present. And we usually talk about point prevalence, that is, at this particular point in time, how many people have this disorder, or period prevalence. Over, you know, we did a survey over 30 days, how many people have the disorder. That's distinctly different from incidence, which is the number of new cases appearing at a particular point in time. And what makes an epidemic is not what is a change in prevalence, because there are a lot of things that change prevalence. It is a dramatic increase in incidence, a dramatic increase in number of new cases. So how can you imagine changing prevalence, that is the number of cases at a particular point in time, without having new cases? Well, I'll give you an example. If you were sitting in this room and you had your eye like this, you had a blinder on your eye, then you would say the number of people in this room, and you couldn't see past that row, was just the group in this two-thirds. But if you took the blinder off, all of a sudden there are another 10 or 12 people over there. Are they new cases? Are they new people? No, they've been here all along. We just didn't count them. We failed to count them. And there are reasons why we fail to count. One of the reasons that we fail to count is that if we think that the disease starts at age 10, and we don't count anybody under age 10, we're, not, we're missing people. And we think it ends at age 15, we don't count anybody who's an adult, then all of a sudden we've missed a large number of people who still had the disorder, but we just didn't count them. And really there's growing evidence that the problem is a failure to count, not, a, not an increase in incidence, new cases existing in the environment. So let me give you some data to try to support that argument. 
So this is a study that comes from California. So I have to start with California. And if you look at this, it starts in 1960 and goes to 1999 or 95. I mean, clearly the number of cases is rising dramatically. Oh my God, it's an epidemic. Run and hide. No, don't do that. Um, and I'm going to show you, st- uh, first of all, these are data that come from the Department of Developmental Services for the state of California, people who are getting served. It's not going out and seeing who has the disorder. These are people who are getting services. So let me show you some data from another place, Minnesota. Yump and Yemeni, those people got common sense. And they took a look at their data, and the first thing they found out was the DSM criteria for autism took place right about here. But something else happened. Then the ICD and DSM-4 criteria came here, and they were broader. They had a broader picture of what this disorder was. But, and then DSM-4 came, and the picture got even broader. So the, the population they started counting was bigger and bigger, younger and older. So the prevalence rose just by changing the criteria, nothing else. But then something else happened that was far more important, and these apply to the California data as well. There's a federal law called the Individuals with Disability Education Act, what we call the IDEA now, which made it a mandatory for schools to serve children who had developmental disabilities. They couldn't throw them out of school anymore. And that's what was happening. Prior to the 19, early 1970s, kids got put out of school. And so if you're using data sets that come from schools or services that are derived from schools, you're not going to count the kids that are expelled, right? Now these kids are all back in school. And guess what happens? All of a sudden the prevalence starts to rise. And in other care systems, the developmental disability centers, etc., started to have to care for these kids because the law required it. And that was the increase. So all these are service data. They're actually not epidemiologic data, going out and counting children. We're going to do that in a minute. So this is sort of a a general trend that's been occurring over the past 30 or 40 years. When I was in training, we used to say it was about three per 10,000. That was like right after the French and Indian War. But but then what happened is in the 19, in in the last 15 years, people have actually been doing epidemiologic studies, going out in the field and counting who has the disorders. And you see, as you count more and more and more, the rates go up, so that we're now talking about rates of 1 in 38 and 1 in 45. Or, and I'll talk about a particular study where the rate is 2.6%. Uh, now, that particular study, I'm the, one of the co-authors on, which I think it's, makes it the best study. Uh, but since my wife was the first author, it makes an even better study. Um, but the critical point, of, and I'll talk about the study in a moment, but the critical point, the number's rising. I have to tell you, I did a press conference when we published this report, and one of the reporters said, 2.69%. Hmm, how many is that per 100? Uh, so it tells you how reliably the media are about reporting some of these things. We told them we'd get our calculators out and get back to them. Um, okay. So why are the numbers increasing? First of all, the diagnostic criteria have changed. They're broader. Secondly, we have better tools for identification. Thirdly, there's more awareness. Secondly, fourth, there are more services. Fifth, there's a wider age range. And, and finally, there's diagnostic substitution. I'll show you data for each of, those, the, each of these. So we have terrific instruments now for evaluating and going out into the field and identifying children. 
But this is an interesting particular chart that shows you that, um, let's see if I can get this to, that it, this column is the one you really want to look at. Depending on how you do the study, which population you look at, how you collect the data, what kind of material you use, the, the prevalence can vary from, from 1.57. This is a, 50, a, a 16-fold variation in, in prevalence just by methods. This is all in the same place, all in England, just different ways of doing the study. So the methods become really crucial as well. There's no epidemic when you change the methods. So this is... Um, our study in Korea. And what we did is we went out into a community and saw every child in the community. So there were tw we saw um, 25,000 children. And we screened them for autism. And those who screened positive, we brought in and we evaluated them. And we ended up with um, a prevalence of 2.6%. Now, what's important about that is, first of all, it's about 1 in 40. Now, if you just think about it for a minute, when you went to school, and you were in a class, you had about 40 kids in it. And how many of those kids were, every year there was always one person who didn't quite get it, was sort of a dweeb or a nerd or, you know, and, and you know, just un didn't understand jokes, was a little socially off. So one in 40 has sort of face validity. I mean, just think about it for a minute. But the other part of it is that, um, that when we looked at the numbers in our study, we could separate the kids into two groups. A group of kids who had gotten services, clinical services, which is about 0.8% of the population. Now, 0.8% was the prevalence that most people have been using for the past 30 years as really believing what it was. And, and the reason was they were counting only people who showed up at clinics. My thing is going automatically now. Uh, only people who showed up at clinics, because they made the assumption that the disorder was severe enough that you certainly would show up in a clinic. Now, what we found in our data in our study was that actually a very small proportion of the kids showed up in clinic, only 0.8%. 1.8% weren't getting any services at all. And why is it? Because they were higher functioning. They had higher IQs, so their mean IQ was in the average range versus in the low average to borderline range. By the way, boys outnumber girls in the lower functioning group. Now, that's not an uncommon event, but boys tend to be more behaviorally problematic, so they get more attention. So all these girls were being missed. And they also had a broader variety of symptom collections along the way. But don't be mistaken, they were all severely impaired in terms of their functioning. Just they were higher functioning. So there is something to be said about collecting data on everybody, and you then find everybody, and your numbers are very different. What about awareness? How is it that people now who are thinking more about autism, actually now they see it more? Pediatricians do, but you do too when you're out in the community. Now, this is my awareness experiment. You're very familiar with this logo, right? and you've seen it everywhere and you recognize it. I'm now about to change your perception of this logo. Are you ready? Did anybody ever notice that there's an uh, arrow in that logo right here? No. Now, every time you see a FedEx truck from today on, you're going to see that arrow. But before today, you didn't see it. So now that we say this exists, this is what it looks like, people start to see it. And so the numbers go up. 
the same. It's like when you get a new car and you buy a Chevrolet, then you see lots of Chevrolets on it. This is the nature of, of human observation. And so part of the epidemic is just awareness. Then there are also more services. We have more research to support services, and there are state and federal laws requiring more services. So that means that there's more kids counted. And then finally, it used to be this was a disorder of school-aged children from 6 to 16. We can now make a diagnosis at the age of 12 months, and we know that these people grow up and continue to have autism throughout their lifespan. And finally, there's the question of diagnostic substitution. These are data from the CDC. What's important is that their prevalence number is finally getting close to ours. Um, So they were wrong, we were right. I know, smug, isn't it? Um, But more importantly, they're showing us something else, that the number of people with ASD is increasing and the number of people with intellectual disability is declining. That's impossible. Intellectual disability is is a statistical phenomenon. It's slightly less than 3% of the population. By definition, that can't change. But when people start to count their children and report on what illnesses they have, they report differently based on what? On the availability of services. There are more services for children with ASD right now because they're mandated by law. So people are now changing the way they perceive their children. In addition, it's okay to have a child with ASD because you're a mom and didn't cause it. So the way people are thinking about this disorder has changed quite dramatically. Now, some people have worried that all these new definitions and fancy things are going to change who's eligible for services. And as it turns out from our own data, that it actually doesn't change a thing at all. If you look at the, when we re-diagnosed everybody, we originally had 2.64% in, under DSM-5 criteria, the new criteria, 2.2% have, uh, still have autism, autism spectrum disorder, and almost all the rest of them have Um, this social communication disorder, this variant of autism along the way. So at the end of the day, only about 3% of the individuals don't have ASD anymore, but all of those individuals end up having serious psychiatric illnesses. And most of them have social communication disorder. So the fact is that with all these changes in criteria, we've actually become more precise, more inclusive, and we have a better understanding of the condition. So now that we understand it, can we find out what causes it? Well, sadly, that hasn't been as productive, but we're making progress. I know Dr. Sanders was here last week and talked about autism genetics, so I'm not going to talk about that at all today. But we do know that primarily it's a, that it's a, primarily a genetic disorder. But there's evidence of other factors playing a role in the causality. Uh, genetics are complex, and they manage the clinical complexity of the disorder with these what we call phenotypes. The phenomena of disorder are just as divergent as are the genetics. That doesn't make it impossible. It just makes it more exciting to try to figure out what's going on. But there are certainly hints of future findings. There are a whole variety of syndromes that include ASD that have genetic, known genetic causes, and there are specific new types of genetic variants that Dr. Sanders talked about that actually play a role in autism. So the molecular work is really just beginning. But in addition, autism may not be entirely genetic, but it's mostly genetic. And remember, not all genetics is inherited. So, but there's evidence of gene-gene interactions, gene-environment interactions, and a whole variety of factors that are working together to cause this disorder. So rather than spend time on genetics, I'm going to talk about non-genetic causes. One non-genetic cause is suggested that the brain doesn't anatomically develop correctly. 
That is that the, that the parts of the brain, when the cells come together, they migrate around to form the brain. They don't actually get in the right place at the right time. There's some evidence that certain areas of the brain don't develop as fully as others. And there's some evidence that the brain sizes are different in people with ASD. So this is a study looking at the head circumferences of people with uh, ASD. And what you, we can see is that the heads of kids with ASD are much bigger as a group, not all, but as a group, than people who don't have ASD. And there's some evidence that suggests that during the course of normal development, the brain starts with many more cells, neurons, than it needs. And then once it starts using, it prunes away the ones that are unnecessary because it creates too much clutter and too many signals. But the people with ASD, um, they don't prune their neurons away as well. And so they end up with bigger brains that make bigger heads. I'm actually going to show you another picture that's going to argue for that as well. Um, then there's a group of neurons in the brain that help with imitation. They're called mirror neurons, which allow us to mirror behaviors. And that there's some abnormalities for that in children with ASD. This is something that hasn't panned out very well, at least so far. Then using at functional neuroimaging, that is looking at the brain at work and trying to understand whether the brain works the same way. And there's some evidence that those areas of the brain that are responsible for visual regard may not be functioning the same way. And this is a particular study looking at how um, people with autism look at faces. And there's evidence that the brain activity is less in people with ASD as they try to look at, at faces. And when you actually track the visual regard, the tracking of people with ASD, you can show them pictures of people in social interactions, and you can watch the way their eyes track, and you see that they don't track to eyes and faces nearly as well as people without ASD, and that correlates with some of these brain findings. It just tells us where that something has gone awry. It doesn't tell us exactly how. There are also autopsy studies. Unfortunately, not many brains, and what the brains we have are somewhat problematic because people who have ASD live normal lifespans. And so by the time they die, they have Alzheimer's disease, they have cardiovascular disease, all the things that you and I are going to get. And um, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Um, and so separating that out from the autism-related pathology becomes very, very difficult. But there's some evidence of differences in parts of the brain, like the cerebellum. There's some evidence that cellular migration isn't the same. And, um, and so this is an area that we're really working on, trying to collect brains. But this is an important, coming back to my issue about pruning. If you look at brains of people with ASD compared to those with, uh, without ASD, you can see, you could guess, if I said pruning means getting rid of some excess cells, you don't actually have to be a neuroscientist to figure out this looks like it has far fewer cells than this one does, all those little black spots. And guess what? This is the person with ASD. So there's some evidence that they, there's something different about these brains, but how they're different and why, we don't know. There are a bunch of other factors that seem to play a role as well. So advanced paternal age, possibly advanced maternal age, but certainly advanced paternal age. So older fathers um, uh, look like they have a much increased risk of having a child with ASD. Um, and finally, we're blaming dads now, where we should. Um, 
Uh, there's also evidence that birth complications are related to increased risk for ASD. Exposure to certain toxins like thalidomide, uh, valproic acid during pregnancy, probably not SSRIs, although there's some controversy about that, and certain infections like rubella during pregnancy. And then there are other parental factors that may increase risk, like a short interpregnancy distance and maternal obesity and diabetes, etc. Now, exactly how these relate to one another, we don't know. These are correlations, but they're things that are worth following. The most stable biological measure for ASD is an increased level in a neurotransmitter called serotonin. We actually worked in this lab, not in 1961, but um, not long after. Um, And we've known this was a a finding, and this 55 years later, we still don't even know what causes it, and we don't know even where the serotonin is being made, let alone why it's so elevated in people with ASD. So it's slow, arduous work. There's some evidence that some hormonal differences may make a difference. This is looking at testosterone. Increased testosterone exposure in utero may increase the risk for ASD. And then there are a variety of environmental factors that we have to consider because identical twins don't have a 100% concordance rate. That is, if they were absolutely identical, they would all have ASD. The concordance rate is only about 60-70%, which means there's some other factor that probably plays a role in this. Um, And I talked about the exposures. So there's really a lot of work now looking at environmental exposures. There are also, we have to be very careful when we do this kind of work. But these are the kind of things that increase the risk for ASD. They're correlated with increased risk. Perinatal smoking, fetal abnormalities, having a lot of babies, et cetera. Again, exactly how this happened, we don't know. Um, And then there's this problem of looking at environmental studies. Many of the studies are not very good, um, and what they do is they make assumptions that are just not sound. So, for example, they'll go into a community and say, we're going to uh, study ASD and see... Well, like radio waves or uh, high-tension wires. But if you don't know that the children themselves were directly exposed and you don't have a biological model for that, you really can't uh, make those assumptions. It's something called an ecological fallacy. And most of the studies that have ecological models are actually failed studies. So what are other factors? I want to at least cover one more. So this is the work of Andrew Wakefield, who you may have heard of. He's the one that started the notion that uh, vaccines cause autism. I'm going to tell you now, vaccines don't cause autism. Get your kids and grandkids vaccinated. But Andrew Wakefield was a gastroenterologist who decided he was going to study autism and came up with a theory that MMR vaccines, uh, measles, mumps, and rubella, caused autism. He was later found to be a fraud, lost his medical license in England. He was actually a consultant to some lawyers who were trying to sue the the drug companies that make the vaccines. I mean, it's just a horrible, horrible story. And the reason it's so horrible is because people stopped vaccinating their children and children died. People don't realize that measles in particular is a very deadly illness. We almost never see it in this country anymore. And the only time we see it is when children are not vaccinated. But in 2000, about a million children died of measles around the world. And then another million children had brain injury because of it, just because they weren't vaccinated. So if you look at the rates of MMR coverage, you see that this is, this is a, a study in a family practice group, that the rates of coverage were, were flat, but the rates of autism grew. So there was no relationship, really, between vaccination and autism. 
So then they said, well, it really wasn't just everybody. It was only those children who had, uh, who had a uh, regression associated with autism because they got their vaccines at uh, 18, 19 months, and was the, the vaccines caused the regression. So if you look at population studies of, of pre- and post-MMR vaccine and, and the age of onset of autism, it doesn't change at all. So there's no relationship between vaccine and the age of onset of disorder at all. So then when that didn't work, they said, well, then it's the mercury in the vaccines. Well, they didn't think that one through very clearly. Um, so there are two kinds of mercury that we get exposed to. One is called methylmercury. This is a very potent neurotoxin. It's an industrial waste that gets into fish and people ate in, in Japan and elsewhere and causes brain injury and death. But that's not what they put in the vaccines. They put in the vaccine ethylmercury. Ethyl, methyl, they sound alike. They must be the same. They're not. They're not at all. We actually can rapidly clear ethylmercury from our bodies, and a small dose really doesn't have any in, impact at all. It's gone in a few days, and while if it stayed around for months, it could be a neurotoxin, it doesn't. And if you look at studies, this is from Denmark, they took the, va- the mercury out of their vaccines in Denmark, and, and the autism rates just continued to rise as well. So there's no relationship between mercury exposure and and vaccines. And in fact, if you take a look at all the studies of the risk for um, MMR vaccine causing autism, if it causes autism, it's on this side of the line. If, it's doesn't, if, it's, if it has, makes no difference, it would be right in the middle. And if it were protective, it'd be on this side of the line. Surprise. It's protective. Why? Because when you injure the brain, you increase the risk of getting a neurodevelopmental disorder. And so if we vaccinate people, they don't get measles, they don't get measles encephalitis, and guess what? The prevalence of autism may drop. Unfortunately, it didn't work that way. So there are some early signs of autism and, um, and early developmental signs, but the most critical one is really the lack of language development and lack of social reciprocity. When we do evaluations, we collect information in a variety of ways, sort of a standard deal. We do screening, and there are a myriad of screening instruments, and there's no reason why every child shouldn't be screened for autism. Having one screening chart or another, some of them take very little time, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, and they're pretty reliable. Then there's standard diagnostic tools that are actually very effective. And these diagnostic tools work in children who are very young. The ADI, the Autism Diagnostic Interview, and the Autism Diagnostic um, Observation Schedule, the ADOS, are the two that are the most valuable for us. And just to show you how good they are, in a study that was done by Kathy Lord a number of years ago, she looked at 108 children who uh, were referred at the age of two and diagnosed with autism. And then she followed them up three years later at the age of five, when it would be much easier to make the diagnosis. Now, of these 108 kids who are called autistic at age of two, 61% had autism by the old diagnostic criteria, and 25% had PDD-NOS, which today would be ASD. So 86% of them had, um, had an autism spectrum disorder. So you say, well, wait, you're wrong on 14%? Well, not so terribly wrong. All the rest of them had severe language disorder or had mental retardation. So... 100%, we were right that they had severe developmental disorders, just which one they had was not as, uh, not as 
specific, but we were close. There are many other diagnostic instruments and standard evaluations we can use. We can measure social responsiveness, social reciprocity. We also have to measure IQ, and because people have language problems with ASD, when we measure IQ, we can't just use the standard Wechsler IQ test because they're very language-dependent. So we have to use non-language-dependent IQ tests. This one doesn't require you to speak or have any language at all. And then we have to measure adaptive functioning, not just how well you can think, but how well you can use your skills. And, we, and then we do language measure. And language is the full spectrum of communicative function, includes gesture, speech, et cetera. And then, and then we can measure the odd behaviors, and we have standard ways of doing it. We can measure them over time and tell whether or not these behaviors are affecting the disorder and are responding to treatment. And then uh, we can also, in a structured way, assess all the peculiar behaviors. And all this is for the purpose of designing interventions. And finally, just because you have ASD doesn't mean you're protected from other illnesses, both psychiatric and about a third of the people with ASD, maybe a little less, have intellectual disability. About 25% develop seizures and maybe as many as 40%. So there are other conditions that can coexist, and that complicates the disorder itself. Uh, Then there are a whole variety of other testing we can do depending on the problems the kid is having. We often have to use laboratory studies to make diagnoses. We do some genetics. Fragile X is the most common, but there are other genetic testing. I assume that Stefan talked to you about that last week. Neuroimaging is rarely helpful. People do a lot of neuroimaging, but it's often problematic, particularly in young children, because we have to sedate them, and we prefer not to do that for clinical purposes. Sometimes it's necessary. And then we can use EEGs and then measure for environmental factors like heavy metals uh, that are due to exposures. Now, uh, so once we've done an appropriate assessment, then we have to treat the kids. And so we have to treat the kids in a way that's sort of developmentally relevant. Um, But we also have to think about what things predict outcome. And the things that predict outcome, the top two on the list are language skills. So it probably wouldn't be surprising that top on your list should be teaching people to communicate. That's the critical part of autism. We're not likely to be able to change intellectual capacity. We can do a lot with adaptive functioning, and surprisingly, we can do a lot with the severity of the autism symptoms themselves. So these are the kinds of things we target. Um, And so speech and language therapy, educational programming, et cetera. So there are a whole variety of speech and language programs that are specifically designed for children with autism. It takes specific skill in this area, however. Not just any speech and language therapist can do this, and they're quite specific. There's also educational programming that's very specific for people with ASD. Some can be done in mainstream classrooms in regular ed settings. Remember, two-thirds of these kids are in regular ed settings in school. They just need some support, usually with social functioning. And some need high levels of support. Uh, And there are a series of programs, the most famous of which is called TEACH, T-E-A-C-C-H, from North Carolina. It's an extremely effective program. Uh, that involves teachers and parents working together to train the kids. We also can teach social skills. Now, maybe they won't be intuitive, but they can, if you will, fake it. That is, they can learn how to behave appropriately in social environments and use some of the social skills to their advantage, pointing, etc., so that they can function. But we have to teach it not just in the clinic. We have to go out in the community and teach it. So our staff, we take kids to McDonald's. I know it's disgusting. But we have to do it because that's where children's lives are, to playgrounds and to to Disneyland and other kinds of places. 
Now, because there are behavior problems, we also have to use very carefully constructed behavioral management techniques. Everybody's heard of ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis. That's a generic term for a group of behavioral interventions. There are actually some that are really quite specific. There's one called Pivotal Response Training, for example, that uh, was developed in Santa Barbara. But there are a group of other behavioral training programs that are designed specifically for the behavioral problems associated with autism. Uh, And some of the programs are done individually and some are done in groups. And, of course, we have to train the parents because it's not intuitive how to take care of a child with ASD. I should say, conversely, we train the children to be better children. For my patients, one of the first things I teach low-functioning kids is to hug and kiss their parents. They don't do it intuitively, but I'll tell you what, when your kid hugs and kisses you, you don't give a damn why they're doing it. They do it, it's enough to keep you on it. And this is a very hard job to be a parent of a child with autism. should greatly admire these people. Um, now, medication often becomes a part of the question. So can we treat people with medications? Yeah. But the medications are largely designed to treat specific behaviors or symptoms, not autism itself. They may decrease the problems that interfere with other treatments, but we really need these other treatments. And... Because medications are problematic, we have to be careful that they don't cause harm. It's important to remember, this is a, a when you see, hear, see results of a study, you know, the uh, new drug create, treated uh, arthritis or cured cancer or whatever, when, when you actually look at the study, some people get better, some people get worse. This is a study which had a very positive outcome, but you can see a fair number of people got worse. So when you take this study from a group of people and individualize it, you have to be prepared that it may not actually work in that particular individual. Secondly, all medications have side effects. If they don't have, if they don't have therapeutic effects, they don't have side effects. Well, actually, but it always. And it's a special problem in autism because they can't often tell you what the side effects feel like or what they mean. And then there's the other problem of the notion, well, if a little bit works and a lot will work better. And oftentimes that's not true. Lowering the dose may be just as helpful as raising. But how you work with someone with ASD to negotiate that becomes a tricky problem. So what are the behaviors we can treat? We can treat the RRBs, which are stereotypies, insistence on sameness, tics, habits, um, things of that sort. Um, And we use a group of medications called SSRIs, Prozac being the most famous of this group, but we use others. There's some FDA warnings about it. But if you look at the research, you can see that this is placebo and this is a kid with, a, a, these are kids with ASD, and there's a dramatic decrease in this is obsessive compulsive behaviors. And this is o- overall functioning. These are the kids on the drug. This is using Prozac. But all the SSRIs are very similar. So we have data for that. And when you look at side effects, remember I told you there are side effects. For the most part, the side effect profile for uh, SSRIs and placebos is pretty much comparable. So there are not a lot of side effects. Um, what about aggression and irritability, a very serious problem? Well, there are these drugs called neuroleptics or antipsychotics. These are the older drugs. These are the newer drugs. And two of these, risperidone and aripiprazole, or Abilify and Risperdal, have been approved for treating irritability and autism by the FDA for anybody who cares what the FDA thinks. And this is a study done by the NIH, not by a drug company. And you can see that, that um, irritability is dramatically different between kids with on placebo and on real drug. This is just in eight weeks. And that overall functioning improved much more in the kids with, uh, on the active drug, risperidone. But this is very important. Not every symptom improved. 
Hyperactivity improved, much better on, on active drug than placebo. Stereotypies, the restricted and repetitive behaviors improved. Um, but social, beha- social withdrawal and inappropriate speech didn't get better. So not only certain symptoms work. It's not a treatment of the disorder itself. And what's very important to note is that the side effects can be quite serious. This is an eight-week study. These, some, the mean weight gain was 2.7 kilograms, which is um, about six pounds, seven pounds, just in eight weeks. So weight gain and metabolic syndrome is a real problem with these drugs. There are other older drugs that actually work very well for de- dealing with aggression, propranolol and lithium. And there are actually studies in people with developmental disabilities that support that. I need to show you the data. Many of the kids have attention problems, just like ADHD. And in fact, here's a study that's showing the use of, uh, of uh, stimulants in treating um, kids with, um, with autism who have attention problems. And when you put them on the drug, um, they do better. This is when they're off the drug. And so it actually works uh, pretty much the same way. And then, of course, kids have mood disturbances, um, and we treat them exactly the same way. They can get depressed, despondent, exactly the same way as we treat um, uh, depression in other people. Now, anxiety is a particularly special problem um, because they have difficulty tolerating change. and it looks like the SSRIs, once again, are potent an- uh, anxiolytic drugs and are useful. We don't want to use the anti-anxiety medications like benzodiazepines because they cause disinhibition. And if you have a difficulty maintaining your behavior control, these drugs are probably not in your best interest. Now, there are a lot of new medications that are coming out that are being directed at some of the genetic findings. We don't, we're, I mean... And there's some of them are in very early trials. Uh, two drugs looking at this particular drug was related to oxytocin um, and social functioning are actually in trials now. The data are not really clear, and I think we're going to have to watch this. But it's very encouraging that we actually have medicines that are directed at some of the symptoms that are unique to ASD. And lastly, there are a group of drugs that are designed to actually improve cognitive functioning. These are drugs all used for Alzheimer's disease, but there's at least one study that had some effect here, and there are others that are being looked at to see if we can improve the cognitive functioning in people who have ASD. Now, it's very popular to use complementary and alternative medicines. Um, I, you know, most of these have not really been de- well demonstrated to be effective, uh, but there are studies that are ongoing. Again, just because they're natural compounds doesn't mean they're safe, and I'm going to give you an example of that in a moment. So, uh, But there are a lot of proposed treatments, and everybody who's got an opinion has one about what treatment's going to work, and, um, and who knows what will come up next. I mean, there are just a ton of them. Um, and, and keeping track of which one someone's promulgating this week is very difficult, and it's part of our job to make sure parents don't expend, put their children at risk, and there are two kinds of risks, being exposed to a treatment that can be harmful, but also the use of resources, time and money, which are precious. This is sort of a typical study. This is a drug called secretin. It's a pancreatic enzyme from pigs, um, and you can't tell the difference between placebo and active drug. And this is a common story in these naturally occurring compounds. You just can't, when you do a proper trial, you can't tell. And then there's a treatment that is very popular in some cultures using chelation to remove the heavy metals from the blood of people with ASD because of alleged toxic exposures, for which there's actually not really substantial evidence. Uh, Unfortunately, it takes out all heavy metals, many of which you need to make your enzymes work, and there have actually been four or five children who've died by exposure to these medications completely unnecessarily. So just because 
someone promoting a treatment doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work. And lastly, I just want to mention one thing, that we tend to have forgotten in all of this that children with ASD grow up. And school services end at the age of 22. Um, parents get older. Uh, there are lots of things that happen. And trans- transitioning these folks to community living and to have useful, productive lives in sheltered workshops or real supported employment is extremely difficult. And as they get much older, their parents die and... Um, and so guardianship and support becomes a really complicated problem that is virtually unstudied and for which there are no particular resources at this time. So if you're a parent with a child with autism who's 15 and you start thinking about it, it's, uh, people have a lot of worries and I feel terrible for them. So most children with autism get better over time. Our goal is to try to search for the causes of these disorders so that we can enhance the treatment and ultimately prevent the disorder. But in the meantime, we have to use treatments that improve the rate at which individuals with ASD acquire skills and their ability to use those skills for independent and semi-independent living. And most people with ASD can live semi-independently in the environment. Um, I'll post these slides, and there's some resources for people who want to know Uh, places where you can get other information and other data. Now, as before I stop, I have a quiz. Okay, you ready? Now you've learned all this stuff. The test is now, and we're taking names. Okay, so these are six people, um, and they've all been asked to demonstrate. I'm sorry I'm a nonviolent person, but this is the best instruction they could get. They've been asked to demonstrate how to shoot a gun. Okay? So, I want you to tell me which one of these people has ASD. Okay? So you just raise your hands. Does this person, number one, have ASD? Raise your hand. Anybody think so? Nobody. Uh, What about this guy? Nah. What about this guy? He looks like he's ready for the Marine Corps, doesn't he? And what about this girl? Huh? Nah. What about this guy? Yeah. And then what about this guy? Okay. You all fail. I'm going to start over the lecture. They all have ASD. Okay? And here's the critical point. You can't tell whether they have ASD unless you're interacting with them. This is a disorder of human transaction. Statues can't tell you a thing. And so just because a guy looks a little weird doesn't necessarily mean he has ASD. And just because someone looks pretty normal doesn't mean they don't. You've got to talk to them. You have to interact with them. Before I stop, I want to say one thing. There's a lot of stigma associated with psychiatric disorders in general, but in particular ASD. People go to grocery stores with their kids, and the kids have tantrums. They pull things off the shelves. They're on airplanes making all kinds of noise, doing weird things. And and folks just, you know, gee, can't their mom get that kid under control? Now, you know, if you were in the grocery store and a kid fell down and knocked over a bottle and cut themselves and they were bleeding, the first thing you would do is go over and say, Mom, can I help you? And you would help. You wouldn't say, what the hell's wrong with that mom? She let the kid cut himself. If you're in the grocery store and you see a mom who's got a kid who's having trouble controlling his behavior, you know what? They need help, too. And thinking about, how do I reach out to these people? They're part of my community. And by the way, most people with autism are really nice. They're interesting. 
but mostly they deserve your care and support just as much as any other kid, and so do their parents. So if you do nothing else when you walk out of here today, it's go be more aware, not just of arrows in the FedEx sign, but these people, 2.5%, 2.6% of the population, they're everywhere. And play a role in making them a part of our community and taking care of them. Thank you. I'm going to stop at this point. So now is the time for questions. That is such a profoundly good question. The question is, where does ADHD fit in this? And I wish I knew, but I'll tell you what we do know. Certainly many people with ASD have attentional problems and regulating the organization of behavior we call executive functioning, planning, working memory, and integrating all of that. And they meet criteria for ADHD. And there are a significant group of people with ADHD who have some social problems, not usually as severe as ASD. But when you look at the biology, there's actually some overlap. So it may be that we've drawn a line now diagnostically that says ADHD is different than ASD, but it's probably likely that we're going to end up resorting some of the symptoms, and there'll be a cluster where there's either an overlap or another disorder that we didn't count. But if you look at, uh, in general, people with ADASD have different kinds of courses. Remember, a syndrome is a collection of symptoms that follow, that, 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 a collection of sy- symptoms that tend to cluster together and share a common natural history. And the natural history of ADHD is quite different. That, uh, onset is much later. Uh, the genetics look somewhat different. And the course over time looks different. ADHD symptoms in many individuals abate or go away, but a third continue to persist into adulthood, whereas people with ASD, they persist with symptoms into adulthood. They get better, but they continue to have symptoms, and it's very rare that they, their symptoms go away. So the course is somewhat different. And if we're careful about diagnosis, they're probably mostly different, but there are almost certainly some people who are in the space in between. But technically, ADHD is not on the autism spectrum, but it is a neurodevelopmental disorder. Okay? So, so the question is, how do sensory deficits play a role? And do children with severe sensory deficits, can they look like they have ASD? So the answer to that is yes and no. Uh, not surprising. It's going to be the answer to most of my questions. Uh, so the, the kids who are blind, for example, just blind, they develop social skills. They, have, they don't use the visuals field for social skills, but they can still point, they can still reference, and they can participate in make-believe play. They can do a lot of things. They just can't use their visual skills, but they make up for it with auditory processing and auditory skills. Conversely, people with, with, um, with severe hearing deficits or deafness, they are quite social they play and talk with each other, and they maybe not talk with words, but they use language, sign language or gesture. And so this, they have the language and the social skills to have the transactions that are very different from people with ASD. However, the important point here that I think you draw me to is there are children who may be called spectrumy because they're not socially responsive, because they can't hear or they can't see very well. 
And when you then talk with them, you find out they just they missed the social cues because they didn't hear them. You give them hearing aids or you help them with vision aids or you do other things. Then all the, the problems they have, and it's usually in group social behavior, rarely in individual social behavior, and you can fix that. So part of the evaluation is certainly looking at sensory function. Oh, so some people, um, it's not like you're threatening to abort somebody. Uh, so some, some people have uh, a premature labor and may have even premature separation of the placenta that could lead to a premature delivery. We call it an abortion. Cause the, it, it, and so, so, so the risk of having the baby delivered well before due to, due to the separation of the placenta primarily is, is the risk factor. It's not because someone's threatening to, uh, I'm going to abort you and then you get afraid. No, not that. Okay. Well, so, so there are two questions here. So the first, let me answer the second one first. Um, you have kids, you have people that are, you said, off the wall, and then you have people like Alan Turing. Um, oddly enough, they're kids who may have looked like they were off the wall, and when we treat them, they actually look like Alan Turing. So, um, so one has to be careful not to make a judgment based on an observed behavior. Uh, there are a lot of things we can do to treat kids. And if you look at people, someone like Summer, uh, like... Um, um, uh, uh, Temple Grandin or um, a number of other well-known people with ASD, um, it was an incredible effort on the part of their parents to to help shape their behaviors and make sure they got educated, not let the school systems thwart them, et cetera, et cetera, that get, let them you know, capitalize on their intellectual capacity and, and their creativity. And so we have to make sure that we, that includes us, all of us, don't assume just because someone has ASD that they're going to be off the wall and, you know, in our institution sometime because many of these people have incredible potential. And, and you just can't, you have to really look at them very carefully. And it takes a lot of work. Secondly, the, the, the question of how do we do an evaluation? Well, I sort of outlined it in slides, but I think what we do is in great detail, we observe the behaviors, we actually have sets of standard transactions that we take, use to take place with the kids. We do careful physical examinations, whatever laboratory tests, psychological, intellectual, language testing. And we can then start to define the cluster of symptoms, the group of symptoms that tend to cluster together. And we find that pattern, then we can make a diagnosis, and then we design the treatment for that. It takes a lot of time, and it takes skill. I mean, you, we have to, we spend long time training our students so that they can do this. It's not just, you know, walk in the room, oh, yeah, I know they got autism. And in fact, there's a study done where we, where, not me, where some people looked at folks that were reasonably well-trained in autism, and they went into a waiting room and looked at kids with ASD and not ASD, and they had to pick which ones had it. And they were wrong 40, 50 percent of the time, because just looking isn't enough. You actually have to engage in the transactions with them and then collect all the other data you need, detailed histories, et cetera. And it, it takes a bit of work. But the yield at the end of that is enormous because we, there's a lot we can do to help these kids. They are more common than they used to be, but not as common as one would like. And there are very large parts of the country that don't have access to, to these kinds of services. I mean, if you sit here in California, for example, uh, between, aside from us and Sacramento, between here and Portland, there's nothing. It's six hours to Portland, nothing. 
and um, and then going south, you know, UCLA and, and San Diego have programs, but, you know, this is a big state. And then you go to Wyoming or uh, Montana or Idaho, nobody. And so um, the answer is, you know, there are places around the country, but even though they've been growing in, in great numbers, we're still way behind. And the 2.6% of the population, one in 40, it's a lot of people and a lot of wasted resources in humans if we don't provide care for them. Excellent question. So does reproductive play, technology play a role in the cause of autism? The answer is best evidence we have now, not at all. The only problem is that many people who use reproductive technology are older. And so you have to control for that risk. Once you control for that risk, it, it seems that um, it doesn't contribute in any meaningful way at all. So the question is, what about somatic or other kinds of related treatments? So there are people who have used a number of different kinds of strategies, ranging from uh, dance to um, exercise to riding horses to playing with dolphins to um, a whole myriad of things. Um, and some of them have had small effect sizes. Most of them have never been studied at all, so we don't have data to, to help us. Uh, and then we have a particularly vexing problem when we do this kind of work, because if you have someone with ASD and you spend a lot of social time with them, that you have a lot of people spending time with them and modeling social behavior and shaping their social behavior, they do better. So if you do it in the context of dancing or riding horses or sitting in a classroom, or it, the intensity and the frequency of that kind of social contact has to be controlled to know whether the other elements of the treatment make a difference. Um, and it becomes then a critical question because it costs time and money to be engaging in these therapies. And we, with our patients, tend to be quite conservative and say, if there are studies, then we'll look at them, and if we think that there's efficacy, we'll, of course, support it. But if there are no studies, then, uh, then you know, we're sort of flying blind, and I tend not to fly blind. So then I get the complaint, well, then why don't I study dance therapy or singing therapy or comedy therapy? Uh, you know what? Give me a grant. And uh, we'll think about it. Uh, but, you know, it takes time and money to do this kind of work, and we're focused on things that we think will yield better. So people have looked at acupuncture and acupressure, and, um, um, and, but there's no evidence that suggests it works. Uh, it, so I, I can't... Um, the answer is no. I don't have any data. Excellent question. So the answer... So is, is there any correlation with C-section? The answer is not C-section per se, but complications of pregnancy. Since some C-sections are elective, as opposed to uh, urgent C-sections, if there's a C-section due to some complication, it's the complication that's the risk factor, not the C-section per se. All right. So I, I think I'm out of time, but let me just say two things. Uh, number one, I'm more than happy to stay. I know some of you want to leave. I'm more than happy to stay and answer questions and talk with you uh, as long as you'd like. And secondly, I want to thank you for coming I'm, and indulging me. It's not often that I have people that are willing to sit for an hour and listen to me. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And um, I hope you have a lovely evening and come back to the next medical school session. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.